0: following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. This morning we'll be reading from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 35. If you have one of the Bibles that's lying around the room, it's starting on page 1108. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to discuss and consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago... We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they were. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of God, word of the Lord. God bless the reading of his word.
1: Really long, but I want us to really be able to hear the full story and be able to then begin to seek some understanding. Let me just say one thing. Um, Do you wonder why they, um, that this council in Jerusalem, when they were sending this letter and this word, um, made sure that they said, Paul and Barnabas are good men. They're dearly loved brothers and they're bringing you a really good word. Let me just call it out really quickly. People still didn't like Paul. They still didn't like him. I mean, he was the, like, this is a group of Pharisees that are calling into question that believe in Jesus. And Paul was one of those Pharisees. But there were people in places like Antioch and other places where Paul had been where people were still struggling to listen to him because he was not necessarily the favorite of the apostles or the disciples or any of that. Like, everybody would love for Peter to show up. I mean, that's why Peter used in his own defense here that, hey, do you remember that I was the first one chosen to speak this word to the Gentiles? So he's speaking from his personal testimony, but if we remember from Acts 11, Peter kind of disappeared for a little while because of the threat against his life and there's other reasons for everything that was happening. But so much of our faith is we are going to be constantly bumping up against people that we don't like or we don't trust. And that's in this room right now. We might not not like each other, but we might not trust each other too much. So how do we share with you that, you know what, Andrew, who just read the scripture, is coming to you. He's trustworthy. There's got to be a way in which we realize that this isn't just history, that this is something that can really help us understand that, yeah, there are some real struggles. This past week, I had the privilege of being with my mom for a couple of days. Um, and that my mom's been a widow for a little over four years now, and she's finally getting her legs under her, so to speak, if I can say that as an idiom to describe the fact that uh, I, 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 the, the most peace I've seen in my mom as saying the Lord is with me is kind of the presence I'm feeling with her for the, really the first time since my dad passed. But I was waiting on her in the store the other day, and I was trying to be a good son while she was shopping for a sweater to wear to my niece's wedding in a couple of weeks. And I'm like, Mom, out of every child in your family or every grandchild, I am the least qualified to help you pick out a sweater to match your dress for the wedding. And so I'm taking pictures of my mom and sending them to Ginger and to my daughter Lauren saying, what do I tell her? You know, and thank the Lord at the time my phone was working because right now my screen on my phone is not working and I can't see anything. I have to, I have to actually ask. I don't want to say the, how you say it to an Apple because my phone might actually start to do it and I don't want to interrupt. But you have to usually say, "Hey, somebody," you know, and can you read me my text messages? And and in order to figure out what's going on. But one of the things I figured out when I was waiting for my mom is that instructions generally are written on like a third or fourth grade reading level. Let me explain to you. My mom is one of the few that loves to use those silver sun visors that you put in the front window of your You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Some of you are like, yes, my mother uses one of those, right? I don't know if it's a generational thing, but I was playing with my mom's while she was in the store and I was waiting for her to run in to make a return and I'm looking at this thing and there's a little tag on it. I'm like, let me read the tag. And the tag basically says instructions. The first instruction was to open it. (laughs) The second instruction was to put the indentation where the rearview mirror goes. And then the third instruction was to fold down the visors to help hold it in place. But the fourth one is what really got me. Can you guess where this is going? Please remove before you drive. (laughs) I'm like, okay, the company was obviously sued by somebody in order to get that put on the instructions. Like that just—it just seems illogical to put it where you're blocking the like at least 98% of your frontal perspective, right? And you and you take off driving. It just makes no sense to me. I just want you guys to understand. Acts 15 today is going to feel very elementary. For most of us in the room today, I don't think you're going to walk out saying, man, pastor, that was your best sermon ever. This was so rich and it was so deep because most of what's in here is very elementary. So let me review Acts chapter 14 for you just for a few minutes. This was one of the slides that we didn't get to last week because my computer died in the middle or my iPad stopped working, so to speak. And so... Last week, when we were looking through chapter 14, there were a couple of really key takeaways that I want us to tie into Acts 15. So the first one is, is do we desire the highs and the lows? Now, the highs and the lows in last week's teaching were miraculous healings, signs and wonders, and stoning. Now, we've mentioned out I know we're in Baltimore. I need to give a disclaimer. Stoning isn't drug abuse. Okay, This is actual rocks being thrown at you. Right, And so in Acts 14, we see a church that was charged up with adrenaline because they were experiencing these highs and these lows. Like there would be a theological discourse about which gods were right in the Gentile and Jewish discussion. And people that were respected in different religions would gather together to talk about it. And Paul would just step up and in the midst of it, do something miraculous and everybody's like, yep, he's right. I mean, I would love for it to be that simple for us today, where people are in an argument and the person that does a miraculous sign and wonder is the one that everybody knows is right. But yet, Paul in that same passage was drugged out of town after he was considered dead. They thought they had killed him. Obviously, a rock struck him in the head and he was out cold, and they couldn't find a pulse, so to speak. I don't know if they knew medically even to check for one, so to speak, in that first century. But yet he went back in as soon as he woke up. Paul was addicted to telling people about the hope that he had experienced in Jesus Christ. So are we deepening, or are you deepening your prayer life? So much of Acts 14, so much of Acts 15, so much of the the chapters going ahead or even going backwards in the book were about people who had a passionate prayer life. Today, one of the greatest characters in this chapter in Acts 15 is James, and we're going to talk about him here in just a minute. But it doesn't talk about James's prayer life here, but from a historical point of view, James knew how to pray, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. And are you engaging in your synagogues? Last week we talked about the synagogue wasn't just a place of worship. It was a place where they came together to talk with people in the community, They settled all kinds of issues. It would almost be like a local tavern on the corner of wherever block you're living where your neighborhood comes together for trivia night or they come together to talk about, if it's on a Saturday, college football. If it's on a Monday, the politics of the weekend. And they get together and they talk about these things. And so where's your synagogue? Is it a water cooler on the 18th floor of your building? Is it the lab two over from you where everybody gathers To talk about what's happening in life and what's happening in our government or what's happening in our city or what's happening in um, the, the, the employment place wherever you work. Where is your synagogue? And are you willing to suffer for Jesus? I don't even know if I need to talk about that other than just to say, let me just read it again and be quiet for a few seconds. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? And do you trust that the Spirit of Christ Jesus, that Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is with you? Like if you were to do a scale of 1 to ten, one being I don't feel it and 10 being yes, I'm supercharged with the belief and trust that the Holy Spirit is with me, where would you give yourself a number this morning? Do you realize that you are the temple of the living God? And the Spirit of that God... Now mind you... Every other reference to who God is in the New Testament goes back to like a Genesis perspective. Like the creator, the one that is actually right now keeping the planets aligned and the stars in space is actually the one you're talking to. And he talks back. And he gives you power. He gives you wisdom. He gives you understanding. This is all in midst of what's happening in the book of Acts. So there might not be a lot of things that are necessarily in the story, but I don't want us to just read it as story and narrative, like what's really happening here, what's going on. There are constantly groups of people getting together to talk, to review things that are happening some of the most popular ones that are happening now. There were so- tons of groups of people that were gathering to talk about everything from politics to the Supreme Court and everything recently. Groups of people gathering in order to figure out, well, what can be done and what needs to be done. And some were public, some were private meetings, and they were happening everywhere. Another popular meeting discussion where people were coming together is there's the NFL players' meetings and the NFL owners' meetings that have been taking place. And some of the topics amongst that is kneeling for the national anthem and and is this ridiculous I can't touch the quarterback rule that is now taking over the NFL like you can't tackle the quarterback anymore apparently it's a personal foul worthy of incarceration right and so there's so much happening people get together and they talk about the rules people are used to that and then people look at the rules and they reevaluate the rules and they say, we need more rules. Or we need to interpret the rules a little bit differently. Some of you actually live in situations where there's multiple people that share your dorm or your row home or your apartment. And you probably have house rules. Who does the dishes which days of the week or at least, at least where you should put your dishes and where your laundry goes and what time, when do you have to have headphones in and when you can play music loudly and, and how to have guests over to the house. There's usually some sort of discussion around how people interact with each other. Recently at our location at Riverside Park, um, the old Riverside Baptist Church where we're now partnering with the foundry, we had a ton of conversations about the ways that things were the way that things are going to be, and lots of meetings, some public, some private. And so there is so much of our life that is about a group of people getting together in a room and then everybody else finding out what they talked about. Do you guys understand that? Do you feel that? Do you sometimes feel like you should have been in the room? I mean, yes, often we we don't want to just be told what to think or to believe. And so As you step into Acts 15, this is the same type of people that are now hearing that, oh, a group of people met in Jerusalem, now they're going to tell us what to think, right? I want you guys to know that the way that you're processing your faith In the ways that you're trying to develop trust is something that the evil one has been trying to destroy from the very beginning, trying to get the church to be ineffective and to not grow in love and community and trust with one another. And so there's been so much that's happening that I don't want us to lose sight of that. So here in this passage, this is basically what Peter and Paul are starting out with. They're basically saying, look, we had all of this worked out before. If you remember, there was the story of Cornelius and his business. We just talked about that a few weeks ago. It was quite clear that we had decided what to do, that we, that we had all worked it out. And that's in Acts 11, verse 30. And they had as a principle that God has granted Gentiles to the repentance that leads to life. And so it wasn't just a Jewish faith in Jesus. It was now a everybody's faith in Jesus. And something continued to happen around this issue of circumcision. And a lot of you are like, okay, that's not something we need to spend a lot of time on today. And, but let me help you understand this. If your family had traditions that were thousands of years old, and now you're being told you don't have to do them anymore, it's not easy. Some of, Like, we're a very eclectic bunch of people from different continents around the world in this room. And even how we approach worship and how we stand and sing, for some of you, is just really uncomfortable. There are people that have not liked the fact that I teach from an iPad. They want to see me have a paper Bible up here. And I'm sorry, I I just don't have multiple hands. I don't do well with paper notes. I always lose my place. But... I feel like that the Word of God is illuminated better through my iPad. (laughs) But so much of this talk is about circumcision. But let me just say this. Acts 15 is not a stick for us to beat people over their traditions. This isn't for us to go up to somebody that is struggling in order for them to say, Well, I don't like your music style. It needs an organ and a hymnal. And so, oh, that is so not Jesus. Let me don't you know in Acts 15 they were arguing over traditions? There's so much more that's happening here. Acts fifteen is not simply a matter of traditions versus innovation. There's so much more happening here. It's 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 in Acts fifteen, it is about a Let's get this right. It isn't a discussion where the guys in the room that are having this meeting are just arguing over the things that have always gone on. At the end of the day, they all want to honor Jesus. They're wanting people to walk in the ways of Christ. And so there's some different perspective on all of that. And there's Obviously, a broad brand of thinking that's happening here that's mainly driven by Pharisees who have been keepers of the law and, 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 and had been studying it and trying to honor God. And they knew in the heart of hearts that they were supposed to be a people that was to show to the rest of the world that the creator God loved them and cared for them and was pursuing them through a special people. And so when you start to say, well, this tradition's out, this tradition's out, it's like, well, where does it stop? Is anything that we ever grew up in even right anymore? And I love that Peter and James and Paul, the words that are written here, are great words for us as we engage with people of other traditions, because there isn't this combativeness about just give up this old instrument style or give up your liturgy and, and you know pastor shed your suit and tie because you can't speak clearly the word of god anymore if you're in polyester like that's not that's not that's not what they're arguing over they're arguing over or they're not they're discussing what does it look like for us to walk in the fulfilled covenant of god and the thing that i love that paul talks about here in this passage is he makes sure that they understand that every point of conflict is, a, is to be summarized as, is this the grace of God? Is it about the grace of God? Is there anything that we can do to earn our place with him? And Paul and Peter and everyone else continues to come back and it keeps saying to them, it is the amazing grace of God. It is the grace of God that's been poured out on all of us. It is not the works that we've done. It's not any of this kind of stuff. It is everything to do with the fact that God's grace is covering us. We do not have to change our ethnicity to follow Jesus. We do not have to change the color of our skin. We don't have to change our educational status. We don't have to change our economic position to follow Jesus. We don't have to go get an education. You don't have to graduate from Sunday school. You don't have to go through any confirmation. You don't have to go through anything. There is nothing that we do that earns the lavish love of God. It is God's grace that he's given to us, and it is a grace that he wants everyone to be able to participate in. It is a grace that James begins to talk with this group of people about. So let me talk to you about James just for a minute. Some people, when they approach a situation like this, they have this mentality that once something has been discussed, agreed, and settled, that it ought to be that. Do you guys know anybody like that? I mean, that once you've made a decision, it can't change. And it might actually be better to change, but because you've made the decision, they don't deal well with change. Like some of you may have just experienced that on the second floor as you've prepared for brunch, but the table on the drawing has it right here. We can't move this table, right? I mean, it's just a certain people that are wired that way. Some of people are like, you know what, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no clauses. There's no exceptions. We just have to do it this way. And that impacts our faith. Because God is constantly doing miraculous signs and wonders, and he's bringing new people in. He's inviting people on this faith journey, and we just can't control it. And so how do we continue to pursue God? How do we continue to love Jesus and keep our eyes fixed on him when there's so many changing stimuluses around us? And I believe that what James and them are doing, especially for the church in Antioch, because you know that the church in Antioch, by the way, there were people that went there and claimed that they had authority, and so they show up. And they start teaching and confusing people, and that's part of the reason why people weren't liking Paul, some weren't liking Peter, and they were having to do all this other stuff. And let me just say this to you guys. Do you guys know that there are people out there that literally are intentionally trying to brainwash us or to change our thinking? It ha- it's, it's really happening. There are people that intentionally try to get lies into us. And that's part of the reason why we're pushing towards this growth community life and saying, get plugged in somewhere where you can at least work it out. Where you can sit around and say, this is what we're being taught, but this is what I'm hearing. Like, where is the truth? Like, what is God up to? What does our Father in Heaven really want for us? Let me talk to you about James just for a minute, just so you know who this is. There's multiple James mentioned in Scripture. I'm not going to list all of them, but let me tell you this James. This is the brother of Jesus. This is the one in John chapter 7, verse 5, that did not want to follow Jesus when he was a man. Like, could you imagine growing up with Jesus? You would never win a game. You could not go to mom and say, But mom, Jesus did it. Right? There was never a moment. I mean, you could go up and say, Mom, Jesus is perfect. And that would be right. Right? So imagine growing up with him. I mean, there were moments where, they, where Jesus was embarrassing the family, and they would show up to tell Jesus to come home and stop embarrassing them. And Jesus then declares from inside a house, no, these are my brothers and sisters. So, so James is like, wait a minute. No, Jesus, I'm your brother. And you just said these people that aren't even blood relatives of you, they're your brother. I mean, imagine the confusion that this James would have gone through growing up. But it's Jesus that had appeared to him and it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7 that there was a special occasion, a separate occasion after the resurrection where Jesus appeared to his brother James. And James obviously at that point has a, yep, my brother is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's going to reestablish Israel. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to restore the world. It's going to be great. Jews and Gentiles are going to be together. And if you want to understand fully how much James believed in Jesus, you can read the letter that bears his name in the New Testament. It's amazing what Jesus, what James, began to do. And it's also Paul that's describing the ministry of James in the book of Galatians. He's referred to as a pillar of the early church in Galatians chapter two and verses nine and chapter one verse nineteen. Um, it is very likely James who took over the leadership of the Jerusalem church when Peter had to go hide for his sake of his life and the sake of others' lives so that people weren't mass executed because of the movement of Jesus Christ through the Jewish community as well as the Gentiles in and around Jerusalem. This is James, the one that didn't believe in Jesus, that then believed in Jesus, then saw Jesus with his own eyes resurrected. So when he's telling people that he saw Jesus, he's telling people that he saw Jesus. He's not having to say, hey, I read in the Bible that Jesus was resurrected. He's telling people a firsthand story of an amazing gift that we refer to as grace that he had personally received from his own brother. And so James, by all accounts, became this forefront leader of the early church and was beginning to help move the church towards a global expansion towards Gentiles, which I think is pretty fascinating. And as time went on, he acquired a reputation. Listen, this is what a historian said about James. As the time went on, he acquired a reputation for practicing his faith and having unwavering devotion to Jesus Christ. That theologian goes on to describe it this way. His reputation to people like Josephus in the first century, who was not a biblical writer but just a Jewish historian, said of James, his, he prayed so fervently for his Jewish people to believe in Jesus that his knees were like camel's knees. That's how they described James. That he had wore his knees out praying for other people so much so that his knees were starting to callous up and look like camel's knees. Now that's not a compliment to people wearing shorts, but thank the Lord that wasn't first century culture, right? And you're like, oh look, hey, there's camel legs, right? That's not necessary. Oh yeah, he's got a great prayer life. That's kind of what we're trying to say. So if I say that to you, you need to know, I'm like, man, you've got great prayer legs. No, that's just not, not happening. But one of the things that happened to James was that he was being so effective in Jerusalem. Somewhere around the year 62, which was about eight years before the destruction of Jerusalem, the Zealots killed him. And Zealots were another Jewish um, group that believed in violence against Rome. And they realized that James was a threat to that. And so they didn't just have violence against Rome. They took James's life. And so this is James. This is James summing up the debate That is extremely important and what he's trying to say to them is what counts is the grace of God James is looking at them saying what counts is the grace of God and he's not only doing that he's going back to the book of Amos and if I was to give you a brief walk through the book of Amos let me tell you how the book ends Amos was writing to them saying you know what you are going to lose your privileged status You are no longer going to be this special chosen people. It's gonna, you're gonna lose that. But in the process of the Messiah coming into the world and, and, and doing the work of the Messiah, the Gentiles are finally going to see and experience God. And in the process of that, you will be restored. So James is prophesying that Israel is going to be totally destroyed. And so by James discussing this and bringing Amos into his talk and picking this passage of Scripture, which he was referencing the whole work of Amos. Remember, we talked about the Jewish writing style that they would cite a verse in, in to open up everybody's memory of that whole passage. It's not like we in our way we teach Western today, we go out and cite just this quote and we put a little at the bottom and, and we just let people know that, hey, this quote came from so-and-so and such-and-such book. No, when they quote Amos, they are referencing the whole story of what Amos was writing about. And so James is now quoting about the destruction of Israel for the benefit of the world, but in the process of the world being benefited, then Israel was going to be restored. And so James is making a powerful statement That in Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection, all those promises that were talked about in the book of Amos just came true. So we're fighting about this as like a Jew-Gentile thing, but he's saying, no, in Jesus we're now one and everybody's getting restored. Everybody's getting hope. Everybody has a chance for peace that passes all understanding. And he's saying, yes, we may have lost this privilege, privilege, privilege status and this feeling, but you guys know, but in now fully being restored, and not only us, but others can join us at the hip as equal heirs to Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter your bloodline. So could you see James getting a little bit excited about this story? About what he experienced and how it was bringing people together? So James and the others worked out what is uh, I view as like a double principle, a way to kind of settle this one dispute. And so they came to two conclusions. There was no needful circumcision, and there was no needless offense. So let me start with the no needless circumcision just for a moment. Because the Gentiles who believed in Jesus do not have to be circumcised, but we also need to understand that a lot of the Christians around them were former Jewish Worshippers like fully involved in Torah, following the words of Moses, and that. But they were being told, you don't have to become Jewish in order to be a Christian. But they also were no second-class citizens. Gentiles weren't better than Jews. Jews weren't better than Gentiles. They were all equal in this, which I just shared with you. Um, and so, there's no separate category of salvation for a Jew, or no separate category for a salvation of a gentile and so what they were saying was that circumcision is a non-issue if you are circumcision circumcised then good for you right but that mark on you especially as a male is not necessarily going to be embedded on everybody else you're fine to be circumcised and you can continue to circumcise but it is not a mandate for everybody so there's no need for circumcision and then this other part, this no needless offense, because it wasn't all about Jewish people. Because again, when you get privileged, it's hard to act responsibly. Listen, this is something that we all struggle with. I don't care where you come from. Once you reach a privileged point in life, it is really hard to maintain the character or the desires of your heart that you wanted to do when you felt unprivileged. And so, like, people that win the lottery. Yeah, if I win the lottery, I'd, like, keep enough to pay off my house, but not give the rest away. Well, how many stories do you hear about people winning the lottery and doing that? Right? They end up buying five houses, six boats, whatever, and then they're bankrupt. Right? So what we find here is this no needless offense. Every city and town around the world had a synagogue. I want you guys to understand that this is what was happening in the first century. There were synagogues everywhere. The Scriptures talk about how the Jewish people were spread out and how they were in pockets. And so it was not uncommon for a Gentile to have heard the Jewish story. It was not uncommon for Gentiles to just stroll into the synagogue to hear what they were doing. Because remember, they were places of community, places where people would talk, and they would come in and hear about Moses and the writings and the commandments and the laws, and they would have a very strong understanding of all that. Now, could you imagine a, a Gentile walking in and being like, ah, that's not important anymore. Let me tell you about us Gentiles and the presence of God, right? It's so easy for things to have gotten way out of hand and conflicts to have arisen just because somebody's excited, but they don't know what to do with their excitement. They don't know how to talk about it without offending people. That's why words are so difficult and the Internet so deadly to so many people because we are using our words and they cut. That's why James talks about that in his letter to the early church. So there's no needless offense. So what what they're saying here is they're, as they're getting this letter ready to go out to the churches is they were basically saying to Gentiles, don't abuse the Jewish people. Don't go after their traditions. Don't speak ill towards them, but continue to walk towards maturity. It's not just about you Gentiles now. It's about Jews and Gentiles, and we've got to come together believing in Jesus Christ. I love what N.T. Wright actually said here, and so I have it on a slide for you. He says, What impresses me and what I long to see in the church of today and tomorrow is the realism with which the question is addressed rather than the brittle um, absolutionism that, is, that so many might prefer. And if anyone thinks that this is some kind of compromise, it is not only a compromise which stands here in Scripture itself, but it is one which James himself argued on the basis of Scripture. So let me, let me say this just for a minute. We've got to take the time to understand. That's why I love the small group life we call growth communities in our church. It's a place for us to stop and understand. So many times we'll run into an environment like that and we only want to talk, 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 talk. That's why most growth communities come up with some kind of covenant because they need to have some sort of agreement so that the person that only wants to talk will actually shut up and listen. Right? Because there are people that will come to the group and they think that everything they have to say is important. And when you shut them down, they, just don't, they don't realize that, that, yes, it is important, but sometimes it's good to listen and let other people talk. And there's people that should be talking, but because they're, they're what are their personality or maybe they've been shut down in their life by more extreme personalities, they begin to just shut down and they don't share what God is doing. And so what we find here is that you and I, as a reader of scripture and as we step into talking about our teachings is that we have to find understanding we can't that's why when we were going through this hard topics this past month that i was sharing with you my journey through things in regards to sexual temptations of all different kinds but my questions were shaped around the idea of when you follow jesus what is jesus saying to you I want you to understand why I believe what I believe. And sometimes I actually feel like the Holy Spirit is sharing with me things that I need to share with all of us. But at the end of the day, your ears have to hear and you have to say, Father, help me understand. I can't force understanding on you, much like I tried to force prayer on you earlier, right? But in some ways, we've got to have a posture of our heart. Father, I want to understand. I think I know. But nothing is worse than you and I thinking we know something and then we turn out to be wrong. And so so the first part of this was circumcision. The next part of this is James, which then brings in the title of the message today, which is Circumcision, James, and a Letter. All right. So if you really want to know what the theme of the message was, is there's your three points. But today, let me talk about the letter here just for a minute as I move us to a close. People... Write fake letters. I know that's not like the most encouraging thing to say right now when we're gathering in church and we're trying to find truth. But you know that there are people that actually make up stuff and then send it out like it's legit. Some of you are like, Are you getting political right now? Like, I'm not, that's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about scripture. Because Do you guys know that when Paul was writing his second letter to the church in Thessalonica, he says this? Don't believe it, he says. Look at my handwriting. Don't trust a letter without identifying my handwriting. So can you see why now they were looking for two trustworthy people that the people specifically in Antioch, when this letter was delivered, that they would trust do you not know that the letter to the, book of, uh, to the people in Rome that we call Romans was delivered by Phoebe? Because she was identified as one of them and was trusted. And so when Paul wrote to them, Phoebe shows up and says, hey, I was with Paul. And they're like, great, it's from Paul. Do you understand that there were people that were circulating letters in this time period because they wanted to deceive the church? Just like there's people today that are looking to deceive us, and it's in the small group life of our church, in the times that we can talk about and regurgitate the things that we're learning and chew on it here, that we can begin to say, no, we're not being led astray, and I can set before you people that we've prayed over, we've prayed with, and we can say to them, look, they're coming to you because they're trying to bring hope in Jesus' name. They're trustworthy. Talk to them. Talk about your questions. They are seeking the Holy Spirit of God to say, Father, help me as I step into this. I don't necessarily feel prepared for this, but there's at least a posture of humility to say, Father, I know that I need to make myself accessible to my brothers and sisters. People are showing up to my home or other places because they're saying they trust me. And we're trying to send people with trustworthy news. So in this particular time, when somebody sends a letter, how can you you know for sure that the letter was really coming from them? It had to be hand-delivered by a trustworthy person. Can we now see why the enemy in this world, he's got many names in Scripture, but the enemy, the evil one, is seeking to destroy trust between brothers and sisters? Because if a brother or sister has destroyed trust and they show up, they could be holding the very words of God for you. And you're like, I don't want nothing to do with it. I mean, the enemy's smart. Now, I just want to say he's defeated, but he's acting smart. Like, he might even think that he's still going to win in the end. Like, I don't know how depraved his brain really goes, but apparently he thinks to steal, kill, and destroy. But this particular evil one is looking for ways to get in and just to rob and steal from us. And so our growth community leaders, were are sitting in front of you because they're supposed to be the place that we're saying, trust. Talk about your fears in Christ. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? And how does it impact Jesus? So... Here's a couple here's the here's the thought. I couldn't find out who originally said this, so I'm leaving this quote without, a, without an author. There's a lot of places that it's been said and shared, but I really thought, thought it was really important. Give a church a rule and you will guide them for a day. Teach a church to think and you will guide them for life. This is why we handled the harmony series the way that we did. we have to get to the point where we say to each other, am I following Jesus? Am I following Jesus? Because it's forcing you to think, am I following Jesus? Are the actions of my life following Jesus? Are the thoughts of my heart about following Jesus? We also looked at it from the standpoint of, well, who's discipling more? Is Jesus discipling more? Is the culture discipling more? That's a thinking question. We've got to get to the point where we're setting ourselves up for thinking. And so Paul and Barnabas have been commissioned to go and to share their work. They're teaching, they're evangelizing, they're encouraging, and that's what we need to be involved in. So if we can stay committed to Sundays. We're doing as much as we can to create opportunities. Even if you miss, you can podcast. We're going to be introducing a new church app to you soon so you can stay in touch more with notes and communication and prayer and things that we can do. So we're going to do as much as we can to help you. We've even been flirting with the ideas of video recording some of this because some of you like, I can't do the podcast because I get too distracted. I want to see it. So we're considering a lot of different things to kind of help us because what we eat here is important. When we end our service ceremonially around the Lord's table, it is a living picture that it's about Christ. And in him I find my will and my way. But it's a we. We find our will and our way. We can pursue Christ. And so today, as we kind of bring this to an end, there's so many things that we're going to bump up against that need to be addressed and discussed and turned and thought through. And we can't just do it in just a little bit of time. And so I want to encourage you guys to find a space. Because things might be going well for you right now. But let me speak to you as a 45-year-old. There's storms on the horizon. There's no guarantee of anything good tomorrow except for the fact that God loves us and cares for us. But it's like we were getting ready for this weekend, and people are um, dealing with all types of stress in Florida. Like it was devastated. It was like as if somebody just took a rolling pen and just went like that through a major portion of the, pan- the panhandle of Florida this weekend to southern Georgia. But it was at 11.30 p.m. Thursday night, That my mother-in-law called me. She was in my basement of my house, supposedly resting. And she wakes me up because Hurricane Michael, even as just a massive storm going through the Carolinas, going up through Virginia and Southern Maryland, pushed all the water out of the rivers in North Carolina towards the Sound. And the water near her house rose nine feet flooding the lower portion of her house and her neighbor sending her picture standing in her lower part of her house with water up over his shoes. And the storm hit Florida and just dumped a bunch of rain. And was quickly moving, but yet it continued to do things. And so here we were going to bed thinking, my mom's property is going to be fine, to find out that it wasn't fine. And I just want to say to you guys, we can't plan life. We can plan, and, we, and it talks about having vision and moving forward. But we have to have community where we find strength and encouragement and we can get into things together. We can't fight through this alone. We don't know what's on the horizon. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to come to the table, um, Father, we know that there's not a one of us in here that's worthy, but you make it possible for us to come. and, And the attitude of this Lord's Supper, Father, is good We are coming to remind each other of the great love of Christ. We are coming to practice speaking of the great love of Christ. And we are coming sharing hope that that the battles are going to be over. We don't fight these for eternity. And we are coming to the table and thanking um, you for Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we take this bread and we take this cup and, and we share it, Father, we are proclaiming life. And so, Lord, would you do a great work in and through us today? And, Father, for those people that are in storms, would they lean into you? And, Father, for those people that have not yet found themselves into community life, Lord, would you please place them in a group today where they can continue to work out their faith with others? Because, Father, we want to be fully mature, pursuing Christ and being a light to all nations. And, Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.